The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, disturbing political ideas, and disturbing sexual references. Thursday, the 23rd of May 2019, this podcast answers the important questions. Are 5G networks safe? Do we know the answer to that? We explore the curious thinking that drove Australia's federal election result. I'm from country New South Wales, I can't vote Labor. And we look ahead to the real challenges. Space squid. That's what we really should be worried about. This is the 9pm arch window of the curious equilibrium. Oh, well, what a surprise. Twitter is full of beautiful, loving humans. It truly is. Or so said the uh, Northern Territory News the other day, presumably as the ecstasy was kicking in in Darwin. Also a surprise, a headline which I would love to understand. Dennis Rodman accused of stealing 400-pound amethyst crystal in yoga studio heist. Just picture Dennis Rodman now making out with an amethyst crystal that weighs, what's that, quite a bit more than I do by several kilograms. No, 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 no. Look, the, the real surprise, obviously, is the Australian federal election result that no one was expecting. Brainworm infested hot takes have been emerging over the last few days. All a bit weird, but uh, what I find to be the most stupid, the dumbest take of all, was of course by Nine News' Chris Ullman, who is definitely not Laurie Oakes. The United Australia Party's vote will exhaust before it elects a candidate in Queensland. That would have been Clive Palmer. So Clive spent $80 million and got a donut, a big Fat zero, and that's one of the best things that's come out of this election tonight because you shouldn't be able to buy your way to power, particularly when you tell an enormous number of mistruths to get there Preach. day and night. Preach, said someone in the background there, apparently, uh, which is perhaps appropriate given that Mr. Ullman. Uh, was a failed seminarian. But that take is dumb. Why is it dumb? Well, apart from it being Allman and therefore, you know, bound to be dumb, actually look at what Clive Palmer achieved for his $80 million. All right, he didn't get into Parliament and neither did any of his people. But the, the seat of Flynn in central Queensland, that's mining country. There was actually, on primary votes, a swing of 1.1% against the Liberal National Party in Queensland. But their final swing was plus 5.2%. And why? Well, the One Nation vote was 19.5%. The United Australia Party, Clive Palmer's mob, 4.1%. And that latter one, due to a deal uh, with the coalition government, any preferences for people uh, just following the How to Vote cards flowed through. Same kind of numbers for Capricornia, which is Rockhampton and central Queensland. And that's, again, mining country. And... Uh, 
the electorate of Dawson, the third on this little chart I'm looking at, it was only a 0.5% swing to the LNP, but you factor in all those preferences, it was an 11.3% swing to the LNP. So in Dawson, Central Queensland, George Christensen, the member for Manila, re-elected for a fourth term. Now, after the election, we've now seen the news that Clive Palmer said he decided to polarise the electorate with anti-Labor ads to ensure a coalition win. He actually sacrificed winning seats in order to prioritise keeping Labor's Bill Shorten out of government. Of course, our shifty Shorten ads across Australia, I think, have been very successful in suppressing the Labor vote. And after all, in the final analysis, we've saved Australia from a trillion dollars of extra taxes and costs. Bill Shorten always said he wanted to increase the wages of Australians. Well, how do you increase their wages? By taxing them to oblivion. Goodbye, Bill. And of course, this election marks the end of Cathy O'Toole. She's a long time going, but now she's gone. Good night, Cathy. Good night, Cathy O'Toole, who was the Labor member for Herbert, who um, Palmer was up against previously. Well, the strategy worked. Palmer now has $80 million worth of do-us-a-favour credits with the coalition government. Well, look, some people have said it's $55 million. I've seen $80 million, and Mr. Oomman says $80 million. Uh, let's just call it $240 billion or something. How might Clive spend those credits? Well, look back to the 26th of April. Clive Palmer seeks approval for Monster Mine next door to Adani. Yes, Clive Palmer already has in the pipeline uh, a claim, uh, a, a, a bid to get approval for a, a huge new coal mine in central Queensland. It could produce 33% more coal, good old coal, than the controversial Adani project and also the Carmichael mine. And guess what? Its viability depends on all sorts of government assistance. So, from my view, Clive Palmer didn't fail. Ullman is an idiot. Clive Palmer seems to have got very good value for his money. Uh, what else did I notice in the election campaign? Uh, a wonderful line uh, about Pauline Hanson, uh, her former One Nation candidate, Fraser Anning, brackets, the Nazi, in brackets. Pauline Hanson reckons he's a racist, and she accuses him of trying to be another Pauline Hanson. Well, how dare he? There was also a truly magnificent uh, bit of praise for Pauline Hanson, uh, from who appears to be a senator again, uh, the strange conspiracy theorist Malcolm Roberts. I'm going to play this in full. It's a shame you can't see the video. I really love working with Pauline as our party's leader because she resonates with everyday Aussies and I trust her implicitly. I like her complete integrity and honesty, her determination, tenacity and that wonderful energy. She listens. She really listens to understand and connect with people. She speaks so freely and directly and openly. She takes action. She has a bloody go. She openly offers herself to be held accountable and questioned. And she's always guided by what is in the best interests of Australia. She always does what's best for our country. You know, she's frugal, 
responsible and respectful with taxpayer money. And she is smart, highly intelligent and got common sense. She hasn't got my honours degree or my master's degree in business. But she can hold her own with anyone. She can keep up with anyone and is usually in front. And she goes to the core of an issue and understands the big picture. And she remembers numbers. She's highly competent. And she's got the best political instinct since the Joe Bielke Peterson. Although I've worked at underground coalfaces around Australia and worked on a vineyard and in factories and with directors and boards and executives here and overseas and as an executive myself. You know, Pauline is the only boss I have ever truly admired. That's why, if re-elected to the Senate, I pledge my complete loyalty to her. Dum, dum. Senator Malcolm Roberts pledges his complete loyalty with those wide, wild eyes of his. Um, I'll skip over uh, Scott Morrison's victory speech, except to say uh, it was summed up nicely by Liam Hogan on the Twitters. Quote, this is extremely deranged, as if you'd taken Menzies' speech on forgotten people and then sent it on a week-long meth binge. The surprise for me uh, was Tony Abbott. Yes, Tony Abbott has to get a look in. Crusader Rabbit himself. Election Day started uh, kind of fairly typically for him uh, when he was mugged by a bunch of kids outside the Manly Village Public School. You said you want to do the right thing by everyone. Is it the right thing by everyone protecting the planet? Exactly right. But the important thing is to do it in an intelligent way, not an unintelligent way. By putting the earth in coal? Well, well, let me ask you this question. Um, Wind power, does the wind always blow? No. No. Solar power, does the sun always shine? But you can save energy. Well, we can, but batteries are not very efficient and they are very expensive. But the time they work, it's better than using coal to pollute everything. Okay, but if... Batteries are extremely expensive and they don't work very well. Uh, Come on, you send your piece. Isn't it important that when you switch the lights on to charge your phone, uh, it's there when your mum will try to cook? To spend money on something that's going to benefit us and not not do something bad to our planet. But the question is, we've got to have electrical power. The modern the modern world is unimaginable. You can't have a first world economy without electric it power. It doesn't put all and your money on with, something that's going to do good, okay, but, not coal. But the trouble with well, nuclear, now that's a good idea. What about nuclear? Nuclear power is emissions-free baseload power. We've got lots of uranium. Now, that's a good thing. Do you support that? Maybe. So the, the thing is, we need to think, okay? And one of the problems kids have made there is too much ideology, too much religion, if you like, uh, and not enough common sense when we talk about these things. Uh, too much religion and not enough common sense. Fascinating clip worth analysing. Uh, but when that evening uh, Abbott gave his concession speech, uh, there were some fascinating bits of that. There really were. Well, first I want to say to all of you, that tonight we've got good news, and yes, we've got a little bit of bad news, but the good news 
is much more important than the bad news. The good news is that there is every chance that the Liberal National Coalition has won this election. a really extraordinary result. It is a stupendous result. It is a great result for Scott Morrison and the rest of the wider Liberal team. And Scott Morrison will now quite rightly enter the Liberal pantheon forever. I'd like to see Scott Morrison wearing like a really tight Liberal pantheon, just showing off his manly fit. That's what a pantheon is, isn't it? Uh, Anyway... I was intrigued by uh, Tony's attitude to having lost an election. I can't say that it doesn't hurt to lose, but I decided uh, back then in October of last year that if I had to lose, so be it. I'd rather be a loser than a quitter. And hasn't Tony Abbott proved to be a loser, not just last Saturday night, but, you know, in general... The thing that really hit me about um, Abbott's concession speech, though, uh, was it wasn't the complete infestation of brainworms, mental explosion, dummy spit that I'd expected. It was actually graceful. I do congratulate Zali Stegel on what is a magnificent win for her, and I hope that she will have a long... And, and I hope... Uh, that she will have the long and successful career as local member that the people of Warringah deserve. What you can't see in that audio clip is that when the audience started booing, Abbott was signalling them to stop and actually congratulate his opponent. Well done. What else was there? Uh, Jackie Lambie, the founder of the Jackie Lambie Network, she's having another go at being Senator for Tasmania. She was, of course, part of Clive Palmer's lot previously. She really kicked off about some of the treatment she'd had as not the usual kind of uh, senator. You know what, Scott Morrison? If I'm lucky and I have that balance of power, I hope to God you and your people treat me a hell of a lot better than what they did that three and a half years I was up here. Otherwise, mate, if I'm part of that balance of power, we're going to have a lot of difficult getting things through unless it's going to cost you a lot of money, which is great for Tasmanians because I'll be able to deliver. You know what? Drop the attitude. Political reporter Samantha Maiden supported that. Uh, She tweeted, Lover or hater, Jackie Lambie is right. The Liberals, including Scott Morrison, were always disrespectful of her because she didn't fit with how they expect a woman to behave or speak. Fine if it's Barnaby Joyce, of course. That's okay. One of the uh, seats to watch, of course, was uh, Peter Dutton's, uh, the seat of Dixon. Peter Dutton is, of course, the Minister for Oppression. Uh, And he actually had a swing to him in Dixon of 2.6%. Dutton's victory speech was interesting. He kicked off with uh, quite an amazing quote. Thank you all very much. I want to quote a former Prime Minister. 
His name was Paul Keating, and the quote was, this is the sweetest victory of all. I guess it was pretty sweet for Dutton because I think he'd expected to lose. He'd already put his uh, Canberra apartment up for sale. Still, he's got seven other houses, hasn't he? Uh, but I reckon this is weird. Dutton actually noticed uh, the shift to the electorate supporting PM Scott Morrison. And I want to pay tribute to Scott Morrison tonight for his leadership. <laughs> I think, he's, I think he's provided amazing leadership. He's distilled our message down to one which the Australian people understand. He's been able to campaign in marginal seats. He's been able to put pressure on Bill Shorten, which is what Bill Shorten deserved. He needed to be called out. He needed to be called out, and he was. And to Scott Morrison's great credit, right across this great country, he's been able to spread a message of our vision for the future of this country, and people have overwhelmingly accepted that. And it's a great credit to him, to our leadership team, to everybody. Oh, yeah, credit, involved. credit, credit. And Dutton actually did quite a reasonable speech thanking his team. But is anyone really sure what Scott Morrison's message was? I mean, there was, there was a lot of Labor is bad, uh, Shorten isn't to be trusted, of course, and that was reinforced by some unadulterated lies. But what was the actual policy? No one seems to care. Uh, and Dutton was seen as a hero by, by many. The Herald Sun, a Melbourne newspaper, actually illustrated him as a white Christian knight riding a horse into battle. It's, it's an amazing illustration. But I think they've grafted on his head too big because it looks like he's got Tiny, tiny hands. Look, at, at least I didn't make a joke about fisting a horse with those tiny, tiny hands. And when I tweeted that the other day, great, my phone's autocorrect. Now, when I type a joke about, it automatically completes it with the phrase, fisting a horse. Well, this week's mental image really does have to be Peter Dutton victory sex. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Uh, before we go any further, I should mention that as we record this, uh, the Labor Party is going through a whole lot of... Uh, difficulty deciding who its leader will be uh, now that Bill Shorten is retiring. We will not mention any more of that because we don't know the answer. What we will do, though, is uh, introduce, as is occasionally the case, Nicholas Fryer from Adelaide live into the recording. Hello, Nicholas. Hello, Stilgarian. How are you? I'm fabulous, thank you. Um, I am revelling in the explosion of confusion after the election, uh, even though I'm not quite like, what is going on here? We'll come to that, but I think the most important question, even more important than the election, is are you or were you or has any member of your family been a fan of Game of Thrones? Uh, two of us, I think, staggered on for a while from the start, but each of us dropped away fairly early in the game. But um, don't tell me who won, because you never know. I might see it sometime. <laughs> 
It was uh, it was Juventus two nil. <laughs> wow, I knew the name of a soccer team. Are they still a soccer team? Juventus, believe so. Yeah. Believe so. But back to Game of Thrones. Uh, apart from the fact that there, there are there are people upset, certain fans, and there are a million of them or something who put their signatures on a petition to remake the last series because they didn't like it. What? what haven't large text versions of this story been available for some time? Ah, no, 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 no. The last couple of series have gone beyond the books. Have they? Yes. So not even the authors know what's going on. No, that's right. Perfect. Anyway, some people on the Twitters asked, so what is all this about? And I think the best answer was from William Shatner, the great ham actor of note, who summed it up in a single tweet, cray-cray incestuous family rule seven kingdoms. Baddies from the north invade, so most put away their differences to fight together. After winning, they go after the cray-cray queen who didn't help them fight, and everything ends up in a hot miss and a big disappointment, the end. Sounds like much much of television. <laughs> Sounds like much of life, Indeed. really. Apart from the uh, incestuous families. Well, no comment. So speaking of the election... <laughs> What did you make of it? Um, do you remember those heady days about six weeks ago when there wasn't no, that? Ten wasn't, days ago. Well, no, when, when there wasn't that much to, to, to smile about in life, except, mm. except the one certainty we knew was that when the election came, at least it would finally all be over. We would have, we would have transitioned from that period when we had a, a, a weak Liberal government just about clinging to the numbers, more or less adrift without any policy agenda, pulling uh, legislation from the floor of the House to avoid, avoid being defeated on their own votes. And I also I, loved how they filibustered themselves because <laughs> yeah. they'd run out of business in the Senate <laughs> and were desperate that Labor didn't put any new legislation into the pipeline. And, and, and spending most of their time trying just desperately not to talk about the civil war which continues to rage within their party. Um, mm. uh, the, and the one thing we knew was that at least all of that was about to come to an end, and then and then we woke up on Sunday morning and, and absolutely nothing had changed. <laughs> it was I- intriguing. On on Friday night, uh, the betting agencies were offering ten dollars fifty for a coalition win. It blew out to ten dollars eighty. And like to anyone who put a sneaky hundred on that, they should be doing all right because <laughs> Saturday Saturday lunchtime had it all collapsed <laughs> and they were down to two dollars fifty or something. So it was still easy money. But Lad Ladbrokes was, I don't know, they had a single bet of a million dollars on a Labor win. Yeah, because someone thought, yeah, that'll be easy money. It's now at a dollar sixteen. That's sixteen percent return on investment. Lots yep. of it, sure. So someone is down a million dollars. Yeah, if there's anyone betting on a Liberal vote the night before, I'd like to, like to check and make sure his name wasn't Bill Shorten. Ooh. So, yeah, nothing yeah, – the, the, the devil was in the detail, wasn't it? The, the interesting part of the, of the whole electoral process was definitely in the detail because overall, as far as I could tell, about five seats went one way and then about five seats went the other way. Tony Abbott, though, of course, that was a, a moment, a moment for some of us to savour. Um, 57% on a two-party preferred basis, Stegall, so that's a, a, a sensational win. I listened to Tony's concession speech as well that night, um, 
And the one th- the things that struck me were less his his occasional lapses into magnanimity as his <laughs> uh, his insistence upon being true to form. Uh, I noted the observation that uh, uh, he said that clim- when climate change is a is a moral issue, we lose. We that is the the liberal side of politics. But when it's a hip pocket issue, uh, we don't. Uh, in other words, uh, as long as the argument is still that doing anything will cause people to lose their jobs and therefore we must never do anything, uh, it's still a, an argument the Liberal Party can win. So it's nice to know that nothing at all has changed, despite losing his own seat to a campaigner specifically targeting him about inaction over climate. Tony is not for not for blinking. Jackie Lammy's back. <laughs> This man is not for turning. No, absolutely, this, this, this worm at all. He will go, he will be a loser, but not a quitter. Jackie, Jackie Lamb is back, as you said. Jack, it's great to have Jackie, Jackie back. I, I, I was reminded of her sterling contribution to Australian political discourse back just when she was last elected on the, on the Palm United ticket, when she went on Tasmanian radio and, and, and explained to us all that her, her pubic hair was extremely wild and needed a good deal of trimming, possibly with heavy-duty implements, and then uh, also advise the listeners of Hobart Radio, Hobart's Heart 107.3 radio station, that uh, having been single for 11 years, she was very definitely looking for some things in a man, particularly they must have heaps of cash and they've got to have a package between their legs. She said they don't even need to be able to speak. Um, she's got a point there, though. Well, it's nice to know what you, <laughs> I mean, what, what you want. It's very clear. And yeah, presumably, exactly. presumably, that's the reason why she was so determined to get back into the Senate. I mean, I suspect that there is something there that, that is telling us something about our politicians, which is not necessarily to be found in the pages of the newspaper. I mean, after all, they're all reasonably well paid. And uh, I'm guessing that, and clearly some of them can't even speak. So perhaps she's cast her eyes across the Senate benches and thought two out of three so far, if I can get one just tick off the third necessity, uh, I could be in here. <laughs> well, yeah, a backbench senator gets about $200,000 a year. It's not is, bad for sitting around uh, doing yeah, subtle. Well, it's, uh, well, I mean, if you do it properly, it's actually a lot of work. Oh, yeah, indeed. But let's face it, we're talking about uh, two sets of party machines, a, a full 30 senators in there are literally phoning it in. Oh, absolutely. Anyway. They don't know which way to vote until the whips tell them. To be fair, most of those are the lower down the list uh, major party members uh, and uh, independents like uh, Lammy often do do a, a good deal of work for their cash. Indeed, and and Lammy fights for what she sees are the needs of Tasmania and that's exactly what a senator should be doing. It is indeed. And, and let's face it, uh, if the Australian Parliament looked uh, – rather more like the Australian people. There'd be several Jackie Lammies in that parliament, and I have a feeling we would be better off for it, despite the fact that I personally disagree with at least two-thirds of everything she says. Um, we would look that's, That parliament would look a damn sight more like Australia, and that would be to all of our great benefit. Well, what was the name of the uh, the guy who started off in the motorist party or whatever it was Ricky called? Ricky Muir. Ricky Muir. He was a brilliant senator. He was an Again, excellent senator. He... He acknowledged that he didn't know everything in the world, so he read stuff and yeah. listened to people. And and I think a lot of people expected him to be, you know, just a dumb rev head. And then he said, and then he came out in support of renewable energy. And he said, "Well, yeah, I like driving my car, but I can also see when there's 
<laughs> like an issue that needs to be dealt with here. We could do more with, of him, more of Jackie. Yeah, indeed, we could do with more Muirs and Lammies and and fewer Clive Palmers. Um, obviously, Although that- we've, <laughs> as we've heard, we don't actually have a Clive Palmer in person. We don't. But then we really we have didn't anyway spectre. when he was in Parliament. No, that's right. Yeah, I think he was the the, 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 the lower house member who was least likely to turn up and take his seat at any one time. Um, Jackie, of course, originally leveraged herself into power on using Clive's money and um, uh, a willingness to... And then worked out he was a dickhead. Yeah, and and it also worked out that you could maintain a public profile by just saying grotesque things in public. Now, of course, Clive has been spending his own money in saying grotesque things in public for years, um, and given that he has spent... Sixty or eighty million dollars in public. <laughs> yeah, given that he spent sixty or eighty million dollars doing all of this, I heard what you said in the intro about buying political influence. I have to say, those graphs looked rather more to me like Pauline Hanson would be the one rubbing her hands. But, uh, but the true the, enough. I, I wonder. You know, you have to wonder, given the electoral outcome, whether a sixty or eighty million dollar donation to the Liberal Party would have just been easier for Clive. But you know. The, low, the white wobbler will it continue. Wouldn't have done to anything. He what? says it wouldn't have done anything, and I think he's right. Well, I wonder. You still buy an awful lot of gratitude for that, and I'm not sure that you know. Uh, uh, when you look at the the numbers that had One Nation polling at uh, five times the Palm United part or the the UAP's numbers, I suspect yeah, that's true. I suspect I suspect that uh, a, a bit more of the breakthrough is is the fact that. One Nation is polling 20 cents, which is just... This scares the shit out of me. It does. It's not the development we'd all hoped for, but I'm on the record about what I think about Queensland, and I will say no more about it, except to note that we might not have got... We might have got a lot of Pauline Hanson coming at us, and we have, of course, got the senator from the Flat Earth Society, Malcolm Roberts, joining us again, or so it <laughs> seems. Um, we did at least... I kind of appreciate that because... Psychotic conspiracy theories, sovereign sovereign citizens need representation too, and I do like the idea of a sovereign citizen being a senator. On the on the fundamental principle that at least one in seventy six of us is stark staring bonkers, yeah, Malcolm may be the price we should be paying for representative government. Yeah, uh, and Fraser Anning, we got rid of Fraser Anning though, which is has got to be a mm. win. It's got to be a win. The, the only slightly concerning thing I saw about Fraser was that the last time I saw, I haven't gone back to check the veracity of this, so grain of salt, everyone. But I saw something like uh, a, a tally of fifty-one thousand first preference vote votes for Fraser in the Senate. So there were definitely there are at least fifty-one thousand Australians, dare I say again, Queenslanders who are prepared to. Stand in front of a Senate ballot paper and say uh, explicit racism. Uh, yeah, that's 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 me. I mean, okay. Well, look, let's move from Australia to the United States. Uh, you know, President Trump. A lovely clip appeared this week from uh, a mob called Now This News. They thought, what if all of those Fox News and other commentators? Um, Treated Trump the same way they treated Obama. Here's uh, 50 seconds worth of a much longer clip. This is amazing. What is wrong with this president? How dumb is he? The purpose of a journalist is to hold people in power accountable. Now, we're going to vet the president. We're going to talk about his vacation, his golfing. Two golf outings for the president cost $2.9 million. 
That alone is amazing. Should a president, the leader of the free world, be on a social network tweeting? No. He's, he's kind of a celebrity president. He's kind of like Ryan Seacrest. This is a president who does not really know what he wants to do. He simply wants to be popular with everybody, every audience before which he stands. The president seems almost obsessed with cable TV, or am I wrong? This is a president who rules by executive authority. Um, uh, executive action. When he's not doing executive actions, he's out on the golf course. The president heads to Florida for a boys' weekend of golf. And I, Trump does none of that, right? <laughs> As I say, there's four minutes of that. There'll be a link on the podcast website. Do look it up. It's fabulous. But in other news about how the news is done... Uh, this week, Nancy Wigington died at age 93. She was the first woman to read the national news on the BBC. Uh, and uh, she'd actually been working on the, the BBC's investigative program Panorama uh, before she was hired, just on a trial basis to read the evening news in 1960. It's, it's that uh, relatively recent but uh, the BBC archives actually posted a clip from 1943 about uh, the kind of people uh, who read the news. Have a listen to this. Snag, why should the news always be read in what people call BBC English? Well, listeners will remember that we did try out marked Northern and Scottish voices some time ago. They were liked in their own part of the country, but the majority of listeners seemed to find that they were listening to the way the news was being read rather than to its meaning. Apart from that, Wilfred Pickles, for instance, used to complain that the news wasn't written in the way which he, as a northerner, would naturally have spoken it. So I asked him once to translate a bulletin so that he could read it comfortably. He has a recording of what he did. This is the BBC Home and Forces Programme. Yes, news, this is Wilfred Pickles reading it. There's still no change in the fighting in Libya. Our aircraft have kept up the raids on Axis bases across the Mediterranean and on the African bases as well. I suppose that is very difficult for anyone but a northerner to follow easily. Now, there's one other controversial point. Why don't you have women to read the news? You know, you really answered that already because it was controversial when we tried it a good many years ago. However, I did get Elizabeth Cole to record a bulletin some time back, and here's a bit of it. This is the BBC Home and Forces Programme. Here is the news, and this is Elizabeth Cowell reading it. The latest reports from Moscow are of continued fighting from Finland to the Ukraine. And you don't propose, for the time being anyway, to put women onto this work? Frankly, no. There's no doubt that a great many people would like it, but a great many would not. And we don't believe that now is the time to reopen that controversy. Now is not the time, Nicholas. A great many people would like it, but a great many people would not. I think I know which. <laughs> I know. It's, it's so beautifully diplomatic. <laughs> yes, yes. Lots and lots of women would find it perfectly acceptable and understandable, and a whole bunch of men would absolutely rip us a new one. I'm loved, I loved the bit about, well, no one but a northerner would understand that. Was that was genuinely remarkable, wasn't it? Perhaps it's because I'm the son of a Derbyshireman, but I was when, when the comment was, you know, it'd be very difficult to understand that, wouldn't it, the way he said, this is the news. Hilarious stuff. Oh, well, I think it's time for these. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. 
Elephant Stamp Time. In most episodes uh, of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking, he says, speaking very fast. Only three today. I'll move through them fairly quickly. The first one goes to Jerry Adams, head of the Sinn Féin, uh, who tweeted uh, a few weeks back on Good Friday, on this Good Friday morning and on the eve of Easter, may Lyra McKee to the last be the last to die as she did. Uh, she was the uh, uh, the journalist who, who died in Belfast. Those involved and not the IRA. The IRA embraced peace, which is an interesting concept. It is gone. No Republican can support the anti-peace gangs masquerading as the IRA. They should disband. And then a few minutes, uh, like 45 minutes later, someone tweeted... So true, Jerry, such a needless, senseless tragedy. Except the person who tweeted that was Jerry Adams' Twitter account itself. Someone had forgot to change their account settings before sock puppeting themselves. So, elephant stamp for Jerry Adams. Love your work and love the fact that the IRA embraced peace. That's good. Second elephant stamp goes to Brad Anderson. Um, who uh, replied to a tweet. The original tweet was from uh, the Twitter handle FemFeminista, uh, and she spoke about some idea, whatever idea she was tweeting about, frames sex as something that hetero women are subjected to rather than enthusiastic partners in. And Brad Anderson very cleverly replied, I get the point you're trying to make, but I have yet to meet a hetero woman who enthusiastically participates in sex. (laughs) And (laughs) I think that's your problem, Brad Anderson. I wonder if I'm doing something wrong. No, it's the rest (laughs) of the world that's mad. (laughs) All the women in the world are wrong. That's that's very good. Uh, And the third one, so, so that is... Brad Anderson, and after receiving thousands of replies to that, pointing out what a goose he was, he has, in fact, completely deleted his Twitter account, uh, which is sad because I think we'd all like to hear more from Brad. No, I think I think that's to be encouraged still. I mean, there, there does come a time at some point where you should say, yeah, I, I should shut up. <laughs> I, I'm going away now. Good point. I'm an idiot. He certainly is. Brad Anderson. I should have got up the thing to see where he's from and all of that, but no, he he really doesn't need it anymore. Uh, And the third elephant stamp goes to Ted Cruz, the American politician. He's chairman of the Subcommittee on Aviation and Space. Uh, And uh, this report from uh, political wonk uh, site The Hill uh, explains everything. Senator Ted Cruz said this week that it is important to fund President Trump's proposed Space Force in order to prevent possible space pirates. Cruz, the chairman of the Subcommittee on Aviation and Space, said at a hearing Tuesday, quote, Since the ancient Greeks first put to sea, nations have recognized the necessity of naval forces in maintaining a superior capability to protect waterborne travel and commerce from bad actors. He continued, quote, pirates threaten the open seas in the same as possible in space. In this same way, I believe we too must now recognize the necessity of a space force to defend the nation and protect space commerce and civil space exploration. The Trump administration's current plan to create space force will cost more than $2 billion to get off the ground, according to a report from the Congressional Budget Office. Space pirates! Space pirates, Nicholas. You know what else is in the ocean? 
giant, you know, tentacular-bearing octopoidal creatures that want to rip, you know, your ships to pieces and eat your sailors. Space octopuses. Space, space squid. Space squid. That's what we really should oh, be worried about. I think you're right. So, I mean, very I'm, hentai that, isn't it? <laughs> is it space is it, hentai. You must, you must be watching a different brand of hentai to the one I've got going here in this little window in the corner of the screen. Oh dear. This podcast, of course, is made possible by you, the generous listeners, through your contributions. I want to say this time especially thank you for your generous, if uh, somewhat deranged, support for the 9pm minor party policy filibuster. You'll remember that in that special deal, uh, a proportion of uh, the tips went to the Black Dog Institute for their important uh, work on on mental health research. Well, uh, the total number of tips was $1,908.93. Uh, so the, the deal was I deducted 400 and then half the rest went to Black Dog. So I have already sent to the Black Dog Institute $754.47. Thank you to a whole bunch of people. I won't list them all now because it's a whole bunch of names they'll be on the podcast website. Meanwhile, if you'd like to... Um, if you'd like to uh, contribute in the future, go go this week to a special address, stilgarian.com slash Brisbane. That's stilgarian.com slash Brisbane. Uh, I will be up in Brisbane on the 1st to the 4th of June. Love to be able to record some podcasts as opposed to, I don't know, renting out my ass on, on up in the valley. Is that still where they do that? I'm not sure. Anyway, I'll soon oh, find out. Oh, you're not Unless- sure. <laughs> <laughs> there was a time I <laughs> once up in Brisbane. This was on a video shoot ages ago, and I didn't realise the Tuesday night I'd scheduled to be there was actually Tuesday night before Ecker, the great um, uh, equivalent to the Royal Easter Show in Sydney, and all of that. And and the Wednesday was a public holiday, so I went out drinking with people. And that was in the days where where keys were physical objects and you'd left them at the hotel. And I got so drunk, I couldn't remember which hotel I was staying at. So, so I was phoning friends back in Sydney and Adelaide at about three o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday morning to ask if, they, if I'd told them where I was staying. <laughs> How many of those were still friends by six o'clock in the morning? <laughs> Well, uh, being friends of mine, they were they were more amused <laughs> than, than horrified. Uh, I'm going to play the sting now, so we can move on. Now, I did mention um, Tucker Carlson before the the Fox News genius. Uh, he has been, and and certainly I have been concerned about the rise of 5G technology. Across America, tech companies are rapidly building the infrastructure for 5G. That's the next generation of mobile phone technology. 5G networks will be far faster and far more powerful than our current setup. So far, though, most of the debate over 5G is centered on China and whether its state-run companies have too much influence in this strategically important field. 
Now, we'll come back to uh, brain genius Carlson in a moment. But yes, one of the big concerns about 5G technology is that Chinese companies, in particular Huawei, own many of the patents. And they've been putting the uh, the 5G network equipment on the market at, a, at kind of about, let's say, a third of the price of anyone else. So on the one hand, you've got uh, companies, well, countries rather, like the United States uh, and Australia uh, saying, hey, do we really want the Chinese, not Chinese companies, but the Chinese uh, providing this equipment in uh, into what will be strategically important national infrastructure? Because cause they might spy on us. Uh, and, but at the same time, uh, boards of companies are going back to their security people and saying, well, you know, this is a commercial company. Huawei's gear is this price, why are you wanting us to pay three times that or whatever the factor is on the basis of fear? Now, Huawei being the biggest company here uh, and one of China's great success story has started a Twitter account called Huawei Facts uh, and it says it, it, it is official truth and facts from Huawei. Now, I like this because it differentiates between official truth and you know just no just truth which which is always good and uh, it's worth checking out those tweets from Huawei facts my my favorite is uh, this week they tweeted Huawei is a mysterious and secretive company right wrong take a look at the normal lives of Huawei employees who are just like you and me and they linked to a Guardian story where they did a, a photo essay inside the Huawei headquarters in Shenzhen, uh, Shenzhen being kind of China's Silicon Valley. I've got to remember, Huawei has worldwide 180,000 employees and nearly half of them are in research and development. So surprise, surprise, they're advancing technology uh, at, at a fair rate. And Nicholas, I... Have a look through these photos. The the Huawei campus, shall we say, complex, is constructed as a European city. Yeah, it looks like the sort of place that Chinese people often go to get married in and have all their photographs taken in. It's like a sort of yeah, a yeah, yeah, faux yeah. It, Florence. Yeah, it, it or whatever it is. I mean, that looks more what French and German. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not an architect. Yeah. Uh, but apparently, uh, this is a tribute to Huawei's founder, Ren Jingfei, who not only was a, an engineer in the People's Liberation Army, he was also an architect, because PLA does, of course, a lot of building for the state. As in the United States, the US Army Corps of Engineers builds dams and bridges and the Louisiana uh, levees on the Mississippi, which were, of course, a fantastic success. But then you... You kind of scroll down through these photos of this faux European city, and then there's photographs of employees sleeping under their desks. Uh, and another photo I love, it's it's employees in the canteen having lunch, uh, and they're all very much uh, young men, mostly, uh, in this photograph, a few women. They, they look like the geeks you'd expect to see at a tech company. Uh, but up above them, there are, there are massive screens displaying slogans such as 
exploration never stops at failure. Exploration begins with sharing wisdom. Exploration lights the way forward. In both English and Chinese, interestingly. I think that's possibly for our benefit as well as... They, as they, well as they, the they changed the signs because the cameraman was coming along. We better we better translate that. They won't understand the empowering message of of inspiration. When you're dealing with one of the biggest companies in the world, I remember these these guys now pump out the same order of magnitude of phone volume as Apple, and so that puts them up with such companies as Samsung and LG and and others. Uh, plus all of the, the back-end network gear. We're, we're talking serious money. And people do build these vast Potemkin factories uh, and canteens. Although uh, the Guardian article says one engineer who went to school in the US talked a bit about Huawei is viewed in much of the West. And he said, the company's no different to other big tech firms trying to innovate to make life easier. Um but normal company seems to mean something different in China. I, I, I'm not having a go at the Chinese way of doing things. I'm just noting how very, very different this is. And to a Western eye, a very strange, magical kingdom where there's even someone in, in a punt uh, clearing weed from, from a creek. And, and I suspect this whole thing is artificial. It's it's just been built with with all of the Chinese tech money. Yes, your dystopian future of uh, eighty-hour working weeks uh, as a code monkey bathed in artificial lights twenty-four-seven is in Disneyland. Well, there's the future I oh, didn't expect. Yeah. Well, the slogan is nine nine six. Oh, you work from nine to nine, nine, nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week. And uh, Mr. Ma, who founded that other big Chinese thing, um, he I'll look it up for you. Alibaba. Alibaba. Uh, I forget his first name, but Ma, it's the English version. Yeah, again, nine nine six is the way to prosperity. And says Mr. Ma, you should also be having excellent sex on each of those days. I don't know when. That's quite a bit, quite a bit to fill in to fit in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that's under the desks at yeah. the office. Yeah, you you wash the stack the dishwasher with your hands, and leaving your feet free for the excellent sex. I think we should go back to Tucker Carlson, and not just because we're thinking of of excellent sex. Now we've heard how Tucker Carlson is concerned. Uh, about the the opportunities to spy through 5G technology, but there's more. There's another, even more basic question that is yet to be answered. Are 5G networks safe, physically, medically safe? There's some debate about that. Dr. Mark Siegel is a Fox News medical contributor, and he joins us tonight for an answer. Doctor, are, are 5G networks safe? Do we know the answer to that? Tucker, as far as we know, yes, but we don't know the long-term risks. Coming to a street lamp near you, right, 300,000 of them are going to sprout up in the United States. And preliminary studies from National Toxicology Program looking at 2G and 3G look like it can possibly cause heart tumors and brain tumors in rats, not people, mind you, rats, but change cells in the brain 
and cause ringing in the ears. So we don't know the long-term health risks, and I'm not willing to take that off the table, especially since 5G is closer to you because it doesn't, it, it's faster and it's higher definition, but it doesn't travel as far. So I need to see longer-term studies on this. But before those studies are available, we're building the infrastructure and doing it anyway? Typically, yes. Although Mark Siegel, doctor apparently, did downplay, downplay the risks there, uh, when it continued, you know, you, Tucker's really trying to, uh, to, to, to push this angle. So the concern would be the radiation coming from the, from the, the antennas on street poles, or would it be from our phone, or where would, the, where would the risk be if there is such, if there is a risk? So that's a great question, and I think in this case we're going to be talking more about the transmitters, because remember, the phones, we already have that problem. I don't think the increased radiation from 5G is in the phone itself is what bothers me, because actually 5G right. is, it doesn't penetrate as, as much as 3G and 2G, you know, but the towers are going to be much closer to you, and they're going to be transmitting all day and night. So... I want them studied. That hasn't been studied, and there's going to be a lot of them sprouting up. That's where the risk is. And I'm not talking about cancer necessarily. I'm talking about preliminary changes to cells in the brain. You know, not to mention what we've talked about previously on this show, which is more and more technology means more and more teens not talking to each other, which means more and more depression and right. anxiety. We got that problem too. So we, we need to study this, and we, we need to study do. it fast. I love how he says, now I'm not talking necessarily about cancer. <laughs> unless you're a rat. That's all you live with. Unless you're a rat. Unless you're a rat. The fucking rats need to put their phones away and get real. Anyone I think who's done any physics will kind of have their head across. We haven't all been dying from 2G, 3G or 4G, so I don't think we'll be dying from 5G either. But the one I love is, is oh, you know, let's, let's be in fear of all of the espionage. I think we need to remind people, no one actually needs 5G today, except people selling the equipment to, to meet their targets. There's, like, there's no rush. We could just, let's just slow it down, three months, six months, 12 months, whatever it takes to sort out your preferred suppliers or, you know, buy out the patents from Huawei who aren't going to sell them, but, you know, because they want their cut of every 5G device on the planet. Uh, but that in itself is no different from how Samsung takes a cut of every 3G device on the planet. But either way, we don't need to wet our pants about this, I don't think. Unless you want to, Nick. No, thanks. My pants are good the way they are. Perfectly dry. Okay, I think that's enough about 5G. Your turn. Following on from the federal election, I have been looking for sources of joy in my life not finding them in Australian politics. One of them that I have found, though, recently has definitely been the, the Talking Politics podcast out of the, uh, out of the UK, where uh, Cambridge academic historian David Runciman presents a... Uh, uh, it's now about four or five years old, and there's a lot of material out there on uh, discussing politics, both large and small, both the uh, nitty-gritty of day-to-day -day life uh, in the British political scene and the bigger picture. One of the recent episodes that really intrigued me was uh, his presentation on uh, what is known as the Copernican principle, the fundamental idea that you're not anyone special and you're not standing anywhere special. And Richard Gott's application of that to the temporal zone rather than the physical. Richard Gott was an American physicist who apparently in about 1969 went and had a look at the Berlin Wall 
and also had a look at Stonehenge on a trip to Europe. And he got to thinking about which one of, you know, is it possible that he might outlive either of those two uh, apparently very permanent structures? Uh, and he realised that the Stonehenge had been there for about three or 4,000 years, whereas uh, in 1969 the Berlin Wall had only been up for about eight years. Uh, so it would be very unlikely, very surprising if Stonehenge fell over tomorrow because that would mean he was had visited at a just a statistically unlikely time in its life. You, statistically speaking, you are very unlikely to be present at the very, very beginning of something or indeed the very, very end. You're more likely just to be around somewhere in the general sort of middle of its life. So he thought, yeah, I might outlive the Berlin Wall, but I'm very unlikely to outlive Stonehenge. Uh, and of course, only 20 years later, it turned out that he was quite right, at least about the Berlin Wall part of that. And we'll just have to wait to see what Stonehenge does when the oceans rise. He then went on to study that as a sort of principle. He apparently had a look at the longevity of various Broadway plays and just tried to work out how well you could predict the longevity of a play or musical. Uh, by just reference solely to how long it's been around. And he found that it, it worked pretty well. And so the fundamental principle applies that uh, if you think about, if you've got something that's sitting around that has been around for a little time, it definitely had a start, hasn't been around forever, but you've got no real way of assessing its natural life expectancy because it's not like a person who wasn't born and then die something less than 100 years later. Uh, some things have no natural life expectancy, but you can get a fair estimate, perhaps, or some guidance as to what its how, what its likely lifespan is likely to be. So, on the back of that, I got thinking about some of the things that make up the modern world, and and some of the things that have been around for say a hundred to a hundred and fifty years, and it's astonishing just how many how much that is of our life. And just thinking about things that have been around for a, that sort of period of time, bearing in mind that what that might mean is that. It's not unlikely that we're at the beginning of the lifespan of some of these things. Uh, it's unlikely that we're right there at the end. But it's quite likely that we're somewhere in the middle of the lifespan of, say, the Labour Party, which is a bit more than 100 years old. It's very unlikely that the Labour Party will cease to exist in the next 10 years. But it's probably equally unlikely that it's got another 1,000 years to live. It's perfectly possible that it has only another 50 or 100 years to go. It might have 800 years to go. But something like that is to be expected. Nothing, none of this proves anything, but it does. It, just statistically speaking, you're likely to be somewhere in the middle. The Liberal Party, of course, is even younger. The Liberal Party was formed only about 50, 60 years ago. So the chances are it would not be at all surprising, for example, to discover that we are in the last third of the life of the Liberal Party, which would mean that I would see, live to see its end if I uh, managed to live another 30 years or so. But a whole bunch of things are about that old, about 100 to 150 years old and might be expected to last a little while. But statistically speaking, some of them would be expected to cease to exist in the next few decades. Universal adult suffrage, for example. Indeed, at least in lip service, universal adult access to all aspects of civic life. Around about 150 years ago in this and similar countries, a woman couldn't vote or be elected. She couldn't attend university or even if she were to marry to keep her own property. In fact, until the last 150 years, women had a status which in several important aspects made them less owners and more like property themselves. The idea that that's wrong is older than 150 years and will presumably be with us for a while yet. The idea that people are fundamentally equal has a bit of a history to it. But any attempt at the serious implementation of female equality 
is not a very old uh, thing, and it may not last for very much longer. A world in which slavery is, if not unknown, at least illegal almost everywhere, that's also not a very old idea. And if it turns out that we're in somewhere near the middle of that idea, it might not last more than another 100 or 200 years. Powered flight, the automatic rifle, antibacterial medicine, medicine that does much of what it sets out to do. These are all ideas that are only 100 or 150 years old. Sports, not sport as a concept, but pretty much every sport you care about if you do. Cricket, football, association football, as well as all of its country cousins. Lawn tennis and its descendants, basketball, baseball. They're all about 150 years old. The patent for tiddlywinks was filed by Joseph Ashton Fincher in 1888. Statistically speaking, one of those sports will probably die in my lifetime and cease to exist. Broadcast media, recorded music, the automobile, 100 years old, each of them, roughly. Australia. Australia's not quite 120, and it's getting a bit gummy and grumpy too, let's be honest. How many countries that were in your primary school atlas no longer exist? From mine, the USSR, Yugoslavia, both Germany's are gone, well, at least one, if you prefer, Czechoslovakia. Actually, just typing out Czechoslovakia when I was putting this thing together was like a finger-pecking a foreign word. Of course, it is a foreign word, you know what I mean. It was alien in a way that it wasn't when I was 20. So... In my five decades, about five countries have fissured so badly that the parent state ceased to exist or have been absorbed by another. More than a dozen nations have been created that weren't there before. Ukraine, Serbia, Timor-Leste, Eritrea, bunch more. So that's the rate, it looks like, in this age. About one country dies a decade and maybe two are born. If I last another 30 years, I might expect to see three countries die. I wonder which ones. There's no rule that says it has to be a small, insignificant country. Ask Mikhail Gorbachev. If I live long enough, or if my kids live, say another 60 years, it's enormously likely that I, or at least they, will see a number of things on the list I've just read out disappear from the world. And what sort of world they live in will depend dramatically on which ones those are. Back to the election, I think. Uh, I mean, you're being a bit too philosophical there, Nicholas. What wasn't at all surprising for me was the ign- ign- um, political naivety of some voters. I, I'm going to play now a clip from Andrew Thomas, who's uh, one of the correspondents for Al Jazeera in Australia. This is a voter uh, from uh, Karangamite, which, of course, is an electorate named after uh, extinct uh, shellfish. Oh, I suppose it is very exciting because I think the Australia needs some change, especially with its big policies on environment and education. So hopefully today's the day we get some action. You want Labor? No. Oh. Not at all. I'm from country New South Wales. Oh. I can't vote Labor. <laughs> so what do you? So that, that's like from what you just said there. Education and environment. Yes. They they tend to be things that Labor talks about more. Yeah, they do, but that doesn't mean the Liberals don't have policies on them at all. That's true. That's true. So, so tell me, 
what you what you want to be the outcome of this election? Because this seat particularly matters. I want something done. I'm sick of um, basically politicians deciding that they're not each other's best friends anymore and kicking each other out. I want somebody to stay in, make some tough decisions and actually get us somewhere so we can fix our climate and fix our education does and that, our health. Does that mean sticking with the current Prime Minister or bringing in a new one? Honestly, bring in a new one. I don't like anyone. I don't think any of them have got... Um, basically, none of them are people that I can respect. So we need somebody new and we just need somebody to do something. But then all that lends to you voting Labour, doesn't it? You just, but I didn't. Oh, right, so, so tell me, what did you and why? You understand? I'm a die-hard Liberal. Um, I do believe the Liberal Party does have... No, it does have an option to do something for the Australian public. And I, would, I just think they do need a bit of a shake-up within their ranks, but as well. Thanks so much. What a what an amazingly jumbled set of beliefs, Nicholas. Yeah, but that, are you surprised? No, because that's that's that that she sounded very Australian, deeply yes. deeply confused, no real idea about what's going on, but quite fixed in her ways. Australia in a nutshell, and I think it's worth uh, mentioning Winston Churchill's famous quote in this context. The best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Five minutes of that, imagine. <laughs> I don't think you'd need that long, really. <laughs> Do you have any final advice for the world? Uh, yes, uh, only this. If you were ever uh, feeling a little down, as I discovered today, uh, you can get a smile by a quick perusal of the Wikipedia entry on the subject of tiddlywinks. <laughs> from 1888. 1888 was the, was the patent, uh, but it has developed. Apparently, the game has has, has uh, taken on a, a modern lease of life, starting in about the 1960s, uh, coming out of Cambridge University, and it is now a very sophisticated sport with a magnificent set of vocabularies, uh, including uh, squidges, squops, uh, crackers. What is what? You're making this no, up. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Did you know that a John Lennon memorial shot is a shot that is both simultaneously a boondock and a squap? And I commend the in, uh, Wikipedia entry for to, to, for Tiddlywinks to everyone. That is, uh, look, I have to say this, but that is excellent advice. Well, my advice is to people currently concerned uh, that throwing milkshakes at Nazis and fascists is a bad thing and violent. Uh, there's a Twitter account called Victorian Election Violence UK, which pointed out this week that the Victorians, as in, in the Victorian era, were inveterate missile throwers, and they, they often threw dead cats at politicians during riots. And uh, they've posted a photograph, which I'll put on the photograph, a... Uh, a <clears throat> Woodcut. Uh, a drawing. A, a lino type, a something. Yes. And it's uh, and some charters. Go on. Go to, and we should note, this is throwing dead cats in an age before reliable refrigeration. Yes. But it's a chartist riot, and yes, you can see a dead cat being thrown. So there's that. But I'd also uh, like to point out the lesson of the Netherlands in Dutch politics in the mid-17th century. There was a, a politician by uh, the name of Johan de Witt, 
who I suspect is a different Johan de Witt from the one who is a regular supporter of this podcast, at least I hope so. Uh, now, in the 17th century, uh, the Netherlands uh, was at its height. Huge trade, uh, part of uh, that globalisation uh, up against you know the British and the, the, the Spaniards and so on. And Johan de Witt uh, became their prime minister during this golden age of the Netherlands. Uh, he controlled the Dutch political system for about... 1650, but he died in 1672 because uh, some competing nations, and I'll leave you to look up the history, uh, but an alliance of three countries invaded the Netherlands. It was an effortless invasion because they the they'd been the Dutch had been concentrating so much on the ocean that they'd let the army run down. So Johan de Witt and his brother Cornelius were blamed for this. They were lynched at the Hague, and wouldn't we all like to see that a bit more? After which the rioters partially ate them, and the rioters were never prosecuted. So once again, remember this. Once again. Uh, Pre-reliable uh, refrigeration. You, you just can't leave your pri- your dead prime minister and his brother lying around for days. You just you got to get you got to tuck in. I don't think it's fair. So the lesson from this: in 1672, a mob of angry Dutch killed and ate their prime minister. So you know, just saying, we've we've got options. And, and if the if the partially eaten former prime minister of the of the Netherlands is in fact a supporter of this show, I just like to say, well done, sir. Thanks, you. Love your support. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Stel. For another fun time. Always good. We'll see you again. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, that's all the edict for now. If you'd like some episodes to happen while I'm in Brisbane on the 1st to 4th of June, go now, right now, I said now, to stilgarian.com slash Brisbane, stilgarian.com slash Brisbane. Make that happen. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Have a good one. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.